Welcome to Theology for the Broken Church with the Broken Vessels podcast. Jeremiah 18.4 states, And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. This is the Broken Vessels Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Simpkins. This is a podcast where we have discussions on theological themes for the broken to bring encouragement and hope in Christ. And I would like to welcome you back to our second episode of Theology for the Broken Church with Josh and Brad. And I have my buddy Brad Kafer here with me. Brad, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Josh. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, we had a great time talking about the narrow gate and the narrow way and the number of the elect. And Mm -hmm. we discussed with you all the way that we feel historically that passage should be looked at. And during that conversation, we had talked a little bit about something called the Galatian heresy. And when we had that conversation, I asked Brad to give just a quick kind of concise definition of that. Well, as we continue to discuss about what we wanted to talk about this month, we both agreed that discussing the Galatian heresy at length would be a really good and helpful discussion for you, the listener, to be able to really understand what the Galatian heresy is and what it's looked like throughout church history and how we can see it today. And then to talk about how it can bring brokenness to our lives and then what the answer to that brokenness is. And so that's the trajectory of what we're going to be discussing today. And Brad and I have been looking very forward to having this conversation. Amen. So, brother, obviously the Galatian heresy is what Paul was dealing with in the book of Galatians. It was his whole purpose in writing the book of Galatians, which, as we talked about earlier before we began recording, it's one of Paul's earliest letters to the churches. And Mm -hmm. so I'd like you to go ahead and give a definition of what it was that Paul was fighting against within the Galatian church and this Galatian heresy. Kind of really flesh this out for the listeners so that they can really Mm -hmm. have a good understanding of what it is that we're talking about. Sure. Uh, Before I do that, I would like to share a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote. Sure. He says, the main heresy is always justification by works. And that's perfect for this episode because that's what Paul's dealing with, right? This is one of the earliest books. This is before the Jerusalem Council, which dealt with some of the issues connected to this controversy and this heresy. And so this affected Peter and Barnabas. I mean, this was deeply ingrained in us. And this kind of heresy is something that perennially plagues the church and we have to be on guard against. So the Galatian heresy is the idea that justification by faith alone and Christ alone is insufficient for the Christian life. So what Paul's dealing with are people who are affirming the gospel. They're acknowledging that Christ is Savior and Lord, that he's the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And yet these Pharisees who have converted to Christ have brought their Pharisaism with them. They brought Judaism with them. 
And so they are struggling with believing that they are actually freed from the law in the ways that Christ and the prophets and the apostles teach us that in the new covenant, we are not under the law in the same way as in the old. But these Judaizers have brought this law-based concept with them. And so they're spreading their teaching that to be a true follower of Christ, to be a Christian, you have to keep the law. That you have to be circumcised according to the custom and manner of Moses and that you can't just simply rely on Jesus Christ. And so even if they're not explicitly saying Jesus is not enough, the result of their teaching is that they are functionally teaching that Jesus is not enough for the Christian to get you all the way home. And so the whole book is written in this polemical tone where Paul is opposing this false teaching, opposing the false teachers. And unlike other books like the Corinthians, where he writes with assurance and confidence that these people are in Christ because they have the gospel, even though they're dealing with sexual brokenness, even though they're dealing with lawsuits in the church and spiritual immaturity and spiritual abuse, Unlike those books where he has confidence in their status because they have received the gospel, in this book he is not confident in their status because the fundamental issue in the gospel is what's under attack. And we would contend that the fundamental issue is justification by faith. And so Paul is going to seek in this letter to defend his doctrine of justification that's at the heart of his gospel and show from the scriptures, primarily from the Abrahamic covenant, that we are justified by faith apart from works and that Christ is enough for Christians all the way to the end. Yeah, and and he really hits hard against the actual heresy itself specifically in chapter 3. I mean, he kind of works his way up to it, but I mean, he called the Galatians foolish in chapter 3, verse 1, saying, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? I mean, Paul was upset, <laughs> you know, he put, a, he put a lot into helping these folks to really understand what the gospel is and was for them. And then, you know, he goes and he talks about Abraham and, and all of this. And then he really hits it home in verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, do this and live. If you want to live by the covenant of works, then you have to do that perpetually, perfectly, never anything against the law. You have to do it perfectly from birth to death if you want that to be the thing that justifies you. And he says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I mean, I love this book. This and Romans, they work so well together in really helping you to understand what the gospel is and who Christ is for us. And so that Galatian heresy that he is fighting against, being Mm -hmm. justified by the works of the law, he's telling them, you are under a curse if that is what you're trying to do. That is why this heresy 
The Galatian heresy is so very insidious, and it's very detrimental to the church and brings so much brokenness to people in their lives. And I think Paul knew that these Galatians were truly believers. There were false teachers that were coming in that were leading them astray. And we have seen that throughout history, that this happens over and over and over again, as early as the earliest New Testament Mm -hmm. church. It was happening then. And like you said, this happened before the Jerusalem Council even happened, where they tried to deal with it. And it's been happening ever since in different forms and fashions. And we're going to get into talking about that. Yeah. One of the reasons, too, Josh, why this is so insidious is that it comes in under the guise of piety. It comes in under the guise of holiness holiness and pleasing God and, and obeying. And we're wired for loss. We naturally equate being good people, being good Christians with doing the right thing, making the right choices, being moral. We want to be able to somehow contribute to our justifications. Like you said, it's ingrained in us. And so when these false teachers come in, it's very hard for us to stand up to them because when we oppose them, it sounds like we're opposing righteousness. It sounds like we're promoting antinomianism or we don't care about the law or we don't care about the holiness. Right. But what Paul is so adamant to defend here is that this is not just an issue of food and drink or Jew and Gentile. This is an issue of justification. This is an issue of salvation. What's at stake in this controversy is the gospel itself. Yeah. It's the, so, it's the eternal soul of these people. Because if you're trusting in your works to save you, you are not saved. We live by faith in Christ and in the work that he did for us on the cross. And that is not antinomianism. That is the gospel. <laughs> yeah. And that's why he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So if we need to be holy for ultimate justification, then we don't need Jesus. Christ died for no purpose if righteousness comes through keeping the law. Right. And so his whole point is we are not living lawlessly in the sense of throwing off restraint or living in sin. Rather, we are living by faith in Christ. And one of the things we've talked about that I've emphasized so often is that justification by faith feels weak and impotent to legalists when you are looking at the Christian life through the lens of law and you have a moralistic framework, when people emphasize justification, you end up denigrating that. And you're like, no, that's legal fiction, or that's just paperwork in heaven. Yeah. But what they are not considering is Christ. Mm. Because when you consider who Jesus is and what Jesus did, the only logical response to that is justification by faith alone, because faith receives Christ and all of his benefits. And so if Christ is our justification and Christ is our redemption and we receive his grace as a gift by faith, then faith is the only logical conclusion. It's the sole instrument by which we receive Christ. And so it's not anything in us considered in ourselves, but it's Christ before the Father who is our righteousness and our surety. And so Paul's gospel is that the object of our faith is Christ 
in his righteousness justifies us alone, and that this justification is not just an initial movement into the realm of grace, but it's actually the eschatological verdict from the last day, a full and final declaration of righteous that comes into the present and is received now as the believer's assurance and hope and foundation. Yeah. And that is that is what we are seeking to promote and defend along with Paul against those who would detract from this amazing, life-giving, liberating, and beautiful teaching of the gospel. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I have a feeling part of what Paul was fighting against as well was these legalists that had come in and were now teaching this heresy. I'm almost positive they were attacking Paul. And probably if they had the terminology that we had today, they would have been saying, oh, he's an antinomian. He's a liberal. For sure. And that is what he's fighting against in chapter one and two, as he's talking about basically defending himself and talking about what it was that God did in his life. And and then that's where he gets into the controversy between him and Peter and Barnabas and all that. And as you were talking about how people want to just say, well, you're just being an antinomian. And I'm just thinking to myself, that's exactly what they were saying about Paul. They would have called yep. Jesus an antinomian, man. <laughs> that's why they crucified him. He exactly. was a glutton and a wine bibber, a yeah. friend of sinners. Yeah. No, he was the Messiah. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Oh my goodness. He's yeah. a Samaritan and has a demon. Yep. And so we're all in very good company if we're the ones who are uh, fighting for the faith alone in Christ, because Jesus and Paul and many others were attacked for that. Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 6. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Certainly not. Paul mm-hmm. is not advocating to just chuck the law. What he's saying is, is that's not what justifies you. Amen. The law is good. It is a good thing. And it's something that we should strive, but we, we even do that through faith in the Spirit, working in our lives, looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen. So, Brad, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about how this kind of developed in different forms and fashions throughout church history. If you could give some like examples, I know you like you mentioned Thomas Aquinas. You hear a lot of things about Thomas Aquinas. I think R.C. Sproul said that he really liked Thomas Aquinas. There was a lot of good things that you could glean from mm-hmm. him, you know. And then there's other people that are like, "Oh, that was a Roman Catholic, and he's horrible." And I think there's probably somewhere in the middle. But mm-hmm. I know that you had mentioned there were some things that Thomas Aquinas had said. And then just kind of talk about that. Talk about how we've seen this heresy kind of flourish throughout church history up to like the Reformation and where they started trying to figure it out. Well, so when it comes to Aquinas, we have to understand he was an Augustinian. He was working within the Augustinian tradition. And if we go back and look at Augustine's doctrine of justification, we see some problems. So Augustine defended the graciousness of grace against Pelagius, the Pelagian heresy. And Augustine really is the church father of the West. So the Reformation is kind of competing strands of Augustinianism coming to maturity both in Rome and in the Reformation. It's a well-known fact that Augustine had a poorly translated New Testament when it came to this topic of justification because the Greek verb is very clearly a courtroom setting, a declared righteous, but Augustine understood justification as a transformation. And so he understood it being as made righteous or becoming righteous. Obviously, there was a, a sense of this in the Galatian heresy, but this idea of justification as the change within the soul, maybe an ontological change, starts all the way back in the early church. 
can I pause you just real quick? The future. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to make just a point about Augustine. You know, it's interesting as you see the way that he changed over time as he learned more. It seemed like in the beginning when he was first like a monk and everything, and then eventually he started to kind of put the pieces together as far as grace through faith. But like you said, he, he didn't have a good translation like we have today. And so, you know, he was making inferences based on some of that. So Yeah, and so that develops over time. And so Dr. Jack Kilcrease, the Lutheran systematic theologian, he's done a great job, if you want to look him up, explaining the doctrine of justification from Augustine to the Reformation and how it sort of developed. But when you get to the high Middle Ages and Aquinas, you do see this heavy emphasis on the internal change. So there was an understanding, and actually Richard Hooker, in his book, A Learned Discourse on Justification, he does an excellent job explaining the agreement that we have with Rome. See, a lot of people, they have a caricature of Roman Catholicism and the works righteousness of Rome. But Rome actually believes that God alone justifies the soul without any other cooperative cause of justice. That is, in making man righteous, none work effectively alongside in this matter, but God works alone. They teach that no one has ever attained justification but by the merits of Jesus Christ. So to say Rome is is works-based, we have to explain what we mean. The Reformation had a nuance with this. Rome doesn't just come out and say, it's works, just like the Judaizers didn't come out and say, it's works. It no, they say Jesus and yeah, works. Jesus plus. I think it's interesting, too, because the Roman Catholic Church will talk about grace all day long, but it's always sure. grace plus, plus, plus. <laughs> you know? yep, grace plus human activity. We see this all throughout church history. One of the things that comes out of the Galatian heresy is a two-tier justification, right? Paul hints at this when he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And so someone like Aquinas is going to affirm the graciousness of grace in regeneration. He was an Augustinian. He believed in monergistic regeneration. That had been affirmed all the way back at the Council of Orange in the 500s. He knew that God was the initiator of grace and regeneration and that man does not make the first move in salvation. God does. But what ends up happening is in the Roman system and their sacramental system that God initially justifies you through the grace you receive in baptism and conversion. And God instills within you these habits of grace. And then you cooperate with grace to become more and more holy, more and more just, more and more righteous. And that is justification. Because just like if you kind of turn up the heat and it gets warmer and warmer, make the fire hotter and hotter, there's this idea that you're you're going from glory to glory. So you can see the conflation of sanctification with justification, that the more sanctified you become, the more holy you become, the more righteous you are. And then at the end of your life, you'll be justified finally based on condign merit. In other words, you really are righteous. God's done a work in you such that when he looks at you, you're actually doing it. You're actually keeping the law by grace, but you're justified by works that are done by the Spirit and by grace. So you have this two-tiered justification where you initially are brought to salvation by the work of God alone, but then you're finally saved by cooperating with that grace. So two-tiered justification was the Roman model, and it's part and parcel with the Galatian heresy, beginning with the Spirit, going on with the flesh. So it's a rejection of Paul's gospel, which says the full and final eschatological verdict is received by faith alone. 
Christ is the ultimate object of faith and receiving him, we have all we need in him. So we add nothing to our justification by doing good works. Rather, sanctification, holiness, transformation of life is the fruits of justification and the fruits of our union with Christ. So it isn't faith formed by love that justifies us because we're actually becoming righteous. It's faith receiving Christ and Christ being present in faith that gives us eternal life. So I have a quote here from Martin Luther, and he says, Faith takes hold of Christ. Christ is the form that clothes and beautifies faith in the same way that coloring adorns and beautifies a wall. So he goes on to say, Faith justifies because it takes hold and possesses this treasure, the presence of Christ and faith itself. Mm. The papal scholars say love shapes and permeates faith. By the same token, we say it is Christ who shapes and permeates faith. Rather, he is the very shape and perfection of faith. Therefore, faith taking hold of Christ and him dwelling in the heart is true Christian righteousness. Amen. That is why God counts us as righteous and grants us eternal life. In this, there is no work of the law at all. There is no love, our love but another very different righteousness way beyond and above the law. Christ and faith is neither law nor work of the law. The papal scholars have not taught this correctly because they've never understood it properly. So what we receive is Christ. So the papal scholars teach dispositional justification. Yeah. You come into the realm of grace through the sacramental ministry of the church, and then God changes your affection. So you're desiring God and you grow from glory to glory. And this faith is formed by love. So they actually don't believe in justification by faith alone because faith without love, faith without works is dead, which James says that. And there's a meaning and a sense of that, which is true, but they turn it into faith alone is impotent and meaningless. You have to have faith formed by love. And of course, love is the great commandment. And so it becomes justification by our love, our obedience, our works, our affections, our affections. And so this whole emphasis on affections, obedience replaces the imputation of Christ's act of obedience and his righteousness and his merits. And it makes our final verdict of justification depend on the whole life lived in the spirit by the grace of God. that we cooperate with. And that is not what Paul teaches in Galatians. It's what the reformers were reacting against and responding to. And so... So this That's is kind a, of yeah. So this is a good time for us to kind of segue now into what I would call the modern era of the Galatian heresy, and there's sure. several facets of this. I kind of look at the Galatian heresy as being this big lump of coal, not a diamond coal. (laughs) Big old black lump of coal, but it has all these different facets. And so it's all part of the same lump, but it has different facets, different types of this Galatian heresy that we see in different types of teaching. And I want to talk about that today so that we can help our listeners to understand, okay, when we're saying the Galatian heresy, how do we see that exemplified in the teaching of the church today? Obviously, you just talked about the Roman Catholic Church. They haven't really changed much through the ages, <laughs> so no. they still teach the same things. But unfortunately, this heresy has seeped its way into the Protestant Church as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see it everywhere from Anglicanism to Presbyterianism to Baptists to non-denominational. It's everywhere. 
Okay, mm-hmm. so it's not just a one denomination thing. It's insidious, as we said before. So some of the things that we would say are forms of the Galatian heresy. And please understand, when we talk about this, there's a couple of these characters that we'll talk about that I do think are heretics. Others, I would not go so far as to say that they're heretical as much as I would say they're heterodox. Can you explain what I mean when I say heterodox, Brad, just for our listeners? Yeah, so, I mean, just kind of stay around this issue and look at the ancient church. Pelagianism is heresy. Semi-Pelagian is heterodox. So explain the difference between heresy and heterodox. So heresy denies some fundamental truth of the faith. So if you deny Jesus Christ's divinity, like a Jehovah's Witness would, that's heresy. If you deny that man is affected by the fall, deny original sin, you are a heretic. You're outside the bounds of the Christian faith. The Christian faith has Christian content. That's why the creeds are so important. The creeds come out of the early church and the apostolic deposit of faith and teaching. And the faith that was once delivered to the saints is passed down and summarized in these creeds that summarize apostolic doctrine from the New Testament. So if you deny the virgin birth, you're a heretic. If you deny Christ died for our sins, right, you're a heretic. So there's all of these doctrinal issues that if you deny them, you're outside the faith. You have to confess Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he was born of a virgin, that for our sins, he'd suffered and died and was buried, descended to the dead, that he rose again. So Jesus Christ is both God and man in one person. If you deny some facet of that, you're a heretic. So heterodoxy is when you have, like, for example, the eternal subordination of the son is a bad doctrine of the Trinity. Right. But it seeks to find itself within the Nicene Orthodoxy of the church. So it's not explicitly in denial of Nicene Orthodoxy. But when you actually start to look at what it's really teaching, it does seem to violate orthodoxy. Yes. So is it heresy? You know, they're they're not denying the cardinal truths of who Jesus is. Yet at the same time, it's deviant enough that it's dangerous and problematic. So yeah, it kind of it it degrades. It degrades the Son of God. Correct. Yeah. And that subordinationism is heterodox. So they're not fully Arian, which would be heresy. Right. But they are subordinationist enough (laughs) that we would want to push back and say, this is not a good way to understand orthodoxy. Right. I think another heterodox thing would be a denial of a law gospel distinction, personally, you know. Correct. Yeah. So that kind of helps our listeners understand what we mean when we use these theological terms so that you understand we're not saying every single one of these teachings that we're getting ready to talk about are heretical. Please understand that. However, we do affirm that these are heterodox teachings. So just want to get that out there. So the first one that comes to my mind and is very well known is that of Lordship Salvation. And Mm -hmm. so obviously Lordship Salvation was something coined by John MacArthur. I'm not sure if he coined it before he wrote the gospel according to Jesus or if it was coined within that book. I'm not really completely sure on that. But everybody knows that's like the John MacArthur thing is Lordship Salvation. And there's many others that kind of adhere to that. So Brad, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just explain to the listeners what is Lordship Salvation and how does that actually relate to the Galatian heresy? 
So Lordship Salvation, first of all, you have to understand that it's a controversy coming between the free grace theologians like Zach Hodges and John MacArthur within a dispensationalist framework. Right. So it is fundamentally not historically reformed. Now, obviously, MacArthur seeks to synthesize his position with the reformers and seeks to lean on them and bring them in as allies. Yeah. But as so many people have demonstrated, whether it was Michael Horton or R. Scott Clark or others, I have an article by Ron Diacomo uh, that explains this well. But essentially, the problem with Lordship Salvation is that it redefines what saving faith is. So because it's not reformational, it doesn't have a good law gospel distinction and hermeneutic. And so when it's seeking to defend justification from antinomianism, which is, you know, there is such a thing as antinomianism. Sure. Turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Yeah, free, free grace restraint. is a thing. It is. And that's just as heretical. I mean, it's it, again, it's going from one ditch into another ditch. So Correct. we have to be very careful about that. But the problem with lordship is that it redefines faith from trusting in Christ and receiving all of his benefits to forsaking oneself, forsaking sin, our own commitment and surrender. So it, it takes some of the fruits of faith, like repentance and turning from sin, surrender and commitment, and it brings these ideas back into the definition of faith. So rather than obedience being the fruit of saving faith, obedience is the essence of saving faith. Yeah, kind of what they're doing is they're getting the cart before the horse. They're not absolutely they're, they're not taking things in in their proper place as far as well like the golden chain of salvation you know uh, many of you may know in romans 8 the golden chain of salvation there toward the end of romans 8 and so you know we see the way that you're predestined you're called you're justified you're glorified it all happens in succession and like you just said they take repentance and they take surrender and they take the denying yourself and all that and they put it, it like you said they make it part of the actual faith. Again, it's a conflation. It, it, it's a conflation of law and gospel. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, okay. yes. it's very damaging to people. So MacArthur, like Thomas Aquinas in the Roman tradition, MacArthur is a Protestant. So he affirms justification by faith alone as a statement. He approves of imputed righteousness. But then in the very same breath, he will talk about an ontological change in justification along with a forensic. And in Justification by Faith, his book, on page 122, he says, The believing sinner is justified by righteousness infused into him. So that is Rome, not Reformation. The infusion of righteousness is exactly what Rome teaches regarding justification. Yeah. I but, think, did, did he eventually correct himself on that? Or I thought he, that I had heard that he possibly did, but... What I've been able to read and study is that he made some adjustments in response to criticisms, but kind of like Doug Wilson saying, Federal Vision, no Moss, we see that MacArthur hasn't really changed the substance of his doctrine. Yeah, it's more of a, I'm, I got to make it sound a little bit better so people will accept it kind of a thing. Yeah, a more of a semantic shift than a, a true change of theology. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, even this article says, it's my understanding MacArthur may have repented of his views, but he has not yet recanted on the nature of justifying faith. If anything, he has doubled down. So he still wants to define faith in a way contrary to, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Westminster Standards, the 39 Articles. He's still going to define faith in a way that would be on the other side of the moral controversy 
where you're going to bring things like surrender, commitment, obedience into the very definition of faith, dispositions. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, this is right. the problem with Rome. Even Jonathan Edwards, as great of a theologian as he was, he had his issues. Ha- had his issues around <laughs> this as well because he wanted to define love, put love and dispositions back into the nature of saving faith, right. which again is the problem with Rome and the problem with lordship salvation. So the church has perennially struggled with defining faith by its fruits as if they were a part of faith instead of the fruits of faith. Okay, so lordship salvation, and now you've mentioned Jonathan Edwards, and Jonathan Edwards is really big on the affections, and that kind of segues mm-hmm. into talking about the next, what I consider another facet of the Galatian heresy, and that would be final salvation or final justification as purported by John Piper in Desiring God. There's that famous sermon where he pounds the pulpit and says, you are not saved by faith alone. I know he was trying to be a shock jock to a degree, but people have talked about this on my podcast. He was a student of Fuller. He still holds to Fuller's theology, and that theology is aberrant. In any sense of the word, it's definitely heterodox in the way that he promotes this final salvation. So I want you to explain that facet of the Galatian heresy that we see today. If you can just kind of explain to the listeners what they promote when it comes to final justification or final salvation. Well, I just want to say, like, if you would have met me in like 2009, you would have found me being a complete follower of John Piper. Yeah. And I, I have several of his books and I used to, you know, I used to listen to him and, and, and all of that. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and as much as I've grown to critique Desiring God and John Piper and have distanced myself from that, and rightfully so, I recognize that I'm still deeply indebted to him just from the standpoint of going back to scripture, back to sources. Yeah. I became a Calvinist because of him. Right. So God used him. And that's why we're not here to just say John Piper's a heretic no. and a dangerous man. No. We're saying he is not reformed. Right. And he's he's messing up the doctrine of justification for people in ways that contribute to brokenness and are serious. And that's what we want to discuss. Like, why have why did I go from having all of his books to getting rid of all of his books? Yeah. And so one of the problems with Piper is he does have this final justification doctrine where he emphasizes grace kind of, and again, it's the idea of a two-tiered justification, which there's nothing new under the sun. When Richard Hooker was talking about justification in the 1500s and how we differ from Rome, he talks about how the problem with Rome is they have the first reception of grace and the first justification and then the increase of grace under the second justification we see initial justification with Piper and then final justification with Piper. And he reads passages like Romans 2 that seem to say we're going to be justified by works in the end. And he doesn't understand their context. And so he tries to take a final justification by works and make it compatible with the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone. Yeah, and it just and it doesn't work. No, it's, it, it, it is a <clears throat> conflation, again, a flattening out and a conflation of law. And gospel, just like with Lordship yes. Salvation, it and, is and, it flattening out. And it's a manifestation of the Galatian heresy. And as much yeah. as like all of the manifestations, it says, yes, we begin by grace. 
and faith in Christ, but we go on in some way, shape, or form by human obedience, our cooperation with grace, our works of the law, God will declare us righteous instrumentally in the end right. based on these things. It's not just these are evidence that we received the free gift of righteousness and had Jesus. They're actually part of the declaration itself, part of the basis for that justification. Right. And that, frankly, is wrong and damaging to the Christian. The Belgic Confession, I just thought it would be worth reading part of the Belgic Confession, Article 22. Yeah. It's on our justification through faith in Christ. We believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith, which embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, appropriates him, and seeks nothing more besides him. For it must needs follow, either that all things which are requisite to our salvation are not in Jesus Christ, or if all things are in him, that then those who possess Jesus Christ through faith have complete salvation in him. Therefore, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something more is required besides him, would be too gross a blasphemy, for hence it would follow that Christ was but half a Savior. And so that's what we are trying to uphold, that justification by faith alone is proper because it reckons with who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us. Jesus is not half a Savior. Jesus is not what we need to become Christians, and then our works are what we need to stay or finally be Christians in the end. Rather, Jesus Christ is our whole salvation. We have complete salvation in him. As as Calvin taught, the duplex beneficium, the double benefit, the double blessing of union with Christ, we receive both the legal dimension and being declared righteous, given a new status and identity, and the renovative aspect where the Holy Spirit is changing us. So the free grace controversy and the Lordship salvation and all of these different variants that we've been discussing, they have but half a Savior, but half a Christ. And that was the issue in the moral controversy. We don't have half a Christ. We have the whole Christ, the Christ who's enough for justification and for sanctification. And we have complete salvation in him, as the Belgic Confession says. Now, you you did mention Doug Wilson just a little bit ago. That's another doctrine of federal vision uh, Mm -hmm. that Doug Wilson tried to backpedal a little bit on. You mentioned the article, Federal Vision Nomos, which we all know that was kind of a smokescreen. So kind of explain to the listeners a little bit about like Doug Wilson's flavor of the Galatian heresy and what I would consider is even closer to the Galatian heresy than uh, what I would say like lordship or final justification is. So if you can explain that facet of the Galatian heresy as we see today to our listeners. Well, I really see that in Doug Wilson to a greater degree than in the others because he really emphasizes the internal quality of faith, faith as a virtue, faith as obedience. Right. And he has a covenant moralism that is just blatant. And so there really is no justification for the sinner apart from covenant faithfulness. He conflates faith and faithfulness in such a way that really there is no gospel in some senses. It's very right. much Christ made now, it possible for you to be faithful to him Okay, now, now to the end. Let me just pause you here because there's people, I mean, he's got plenty of content out there. And he does sure. his really snappy little videos and things. And, and, you know, he's he's a good writer. I mean, he's a smart guy oh, yeah. and he's a good writer. But he put a video out not very long ago basically talking about, yes, I believe in justification by faith alone. And 
you know, he puts these videos out and he says all this stuff, but yet, you know, deep down, he still is holding to this federal vision paradigm. It's at the core. So even when he's talking about justification by faith alone, right? It, again, it's semantics. His terms are different than the terms of the Reformation. <laughs> and so yeah. kind of explain to the listeners what I mean by that. Well, it's it's what we've been talking about, that he, he uses faith, but again, he's going to redefine what faith is, saying faith is obedience, faith is faithfulness. That's really their main thing, is that they see the word for faith in Greek and say, this means faithfulness. Right. We're justified by faithfulness. And their, their scheme is such that it's very man-centered. I mean, Doug Wilson was talking with, uh, oh, I can't remember his name now. He was the famous atheist that Doug used to debate a lot. Christopher Hitchens. But he was talking with that man and he said, I'm a Christian because of my parents, basically. My parents were faithful to the covenant and I'm a Christian. So Doug Wilson just really lacks a functional realization of the efficacy of grace, the necessity of grace, and our utter dependence on the spirit for our life in Christ. I see tremendous amounts of legalism and moralism within his framework. I would say that framework is even closer to Roman Catholic. In fact, he's, yes. he's made statements where he doesn't really have a problem with the Roman Catholic Church in many senses. <laughs> so that should yeah. be a little bit of a red flag. So, okay, so Doug Wilson and one other one, and we don't have to delve into this one as deep, but it's one that I do feel should be mentioned. And this is even in the Anglican tradition, which mm-hmm. you adhere to, and many good, loving gospel-loving people that we've had on this podcast, like Marissa Namir and, of course, the pastor that I've mentioned so many times in Jacksonville of Paramount Church, which is an Anglican Reformed Church, and they would not agree with this particular doctrine at all, but yet there is an Anglican scholar that is one of the ones that does adhere to it and promotes it, and that's N.T. Wright, and Mm -hmm. that is the idea of the new perspectives on Paul. And I find it interesting because I listened to Kim Riddlebarger's podcast when he first started. One of the first things he did was he went through the book of Galatians, but as he began to talk about the Galatian heresy, his first two episodes was talking about the new perspectives on Paul as kind of a Mm -hmm. precursor to help people understand. This is literally the Galatian heresy. So, brother, could you explain to our listeners what we mean when we're talking about the new perspectives on Paul and what they are actually promoting. Yeah, well, N.T. Wright is a brilliant scholar, and and so... Yeah, he's a good writer, and I mean, he's put some good stuff out, but man, dude. (laughs) But when it comes to this issue, he's just wrong. And I find him to be hard to pin down in some ways, very kind of obtuse. But again, what are we seeing him teach? He's diminishing Paul's doctrine of justification. Yes. So one of his arguments is that the issue in Galatians is not justification in the way that the Reformed are talking about it, not justification, which we would say Paul is clearly talking about it. It doesn't seem to be this gospel issue and this salvation issue. Rather, he kind of sees it more as demarking the covenant and Jew and Gentile relations. And I don't get that because all you see either. throughout Galatians is gospel, 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 gospel. <laughs> so. Yes, and covenant <laughs> theology to back it up. Yeah, yeah. I just, I do not understand N.T. Wright. 
like new perspective on Paul's to me just seems like a very academic level. It is. It's like it, it, it's hard heresy. for it's hard for just regular you know, average. Like I don't I don't see it having validity. And I'm yeah. I'm thankful for uh, I think it was Richard Gaffin who wrote a great book on justification, kind of in response to the new perspective as well, just defending the old perspective. Right. Right. Which is the true perspective, the perspective of yeah. Paul and the perspective of Luther and the perspective of the Reformed tradition. Amen. And this strange new development that wants to diminish uh, justification by faith alone and covenant theology and sort of make it the surfacey level issues and just make it sort of about like ethnic issues in the church, right? And the demarcations of the covenant, like it's confusing. And it's a real departure from historic Christian faith. It's just interesting, the, you know, with this new perspectives on Paul idea, like you said, it's very academic. I know, like, uh, he, some of what he talks about in there is like uh, second. I don't know if it's like Second Temple Judaism or something. Oh, yes. That's a huge part of it. Yeah, that's that's a big part of it. And, of course, you know, the regular average Christian that's sitting in the pew, they're like, what? What is this guy even talking about? So, like you said, it's very academic. It's hard for people to understand. But the thing that you have to know is that you have to be careful because these teachings, even though they'll try to make it sound super academic and be like, well, you just need to trust us because we're the scholars and we know. So, mm-hmm. well, and also, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Second Temple Judaism because that is so important to new perspective. He, you know, N.T. Wright is, is a scholar of that era, and you know, he has some good stuff on the historicity of Jesus, the historical Jesus, the resurrection. But it's kind of like the caricature of the Roman Church and modern evangelicalism. Yeah, people think, oh, Roman Catholics believe in works salvation. And we would say, yeah, that's true to a certain extent when you understand what the reformers mean by that. Right. I remember I had a professor in college who was a Christian. Long story short, he had begun to study Roman Catholicism and we were talking about it. And he said, you know, I've been really surprised how much they talk about grace. I thought it was a workspace religion, but they talk about grace more than the non-denominational church I've been going to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, they will. Yeah. Because they conflate it. Right. And so... In, the, in a similar way, we can caricature the Pharisees in how we look at them and say, oh, they just believed in works. And that's true from a Paul's gospel standpoint. That's what Galatians is written to be against. Well, the but Pharisees, the, the Pharisees definitely were like it was all about the law. The Judaizers which was a little bit of an aberrant, like it was almost like the Pharisees, like the Christian Pharisees, right? They, right. Were, they were the ones who were saying Jesus plus, 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 grace yes. plus, 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 which is Roman Catholic. But what's so fascinating is that Paul, and when he was on trial, he recognized some Pharisees, some part Sadducees, and he said, brothers, I'm here on account of the resurrection of the dead. And there was a dissension in the assembly. And a lot of the Pharisees said, maybe an angel has appeared to him and we should hear him. (laughs) And what's fascinating is that Pharisees believed in the whole canonicity of the Old Testament. Um, They affirmed the resurrection of the dead, spirits and angels. And so in some sense, right, Paul as a Pharisee had a better theological framework to perceive Christ through than, say, a Sadducee would have had. Right. They were kind of the liberal Right, Sadducees are more the, the exactly. So, in a similar way that today conservatives can become Christless in their Christianity, right? These conservative Jews were missing the Messiah 
but in some ways had a better take on the Old Testament than their Sadducee counterparts. And so I think N.T. Wright's kind of discovering some of that, like, oh, look, they have a language of grace, but he's failing to understand the intricacies and the nuances of Paul's theology. Right, right. So, yes, the Pharisees maybe had their pumps primed, right? I mean, we often think about Paul kicking against the goads, witnessing Stephen's trial and consequent stoning. And how did that possibly play into his conversion narrative? Now, obviously, he was rejecting the way and he was persecuting the church. But when Jesus appeared to him on the road, you know, yes, he sat in silence for three days and he was stunned, but he immediately got up and started proclaiming from the scriptures that the Christ is Jesus. And so all that to say, I think within N.T. Wright's theology, I think there's a similar thing happening with the Second Temple Judaism, right? where people are like, wait, this isn't quite what we've thought it was from the caricature. Just like my professor, who's like, oh, the Roman church isn't quite what I thought it was from the caricature. And yet our objection to Second Temple Judaism and our objection to the Roman church our objection to the Galatian heresy stands because we understand Paul's teaching in Galatians. Right. Okay, so we've talked about what the Galatian heresy is. We've talked about how we've seen it throughout church history up to the Reformation and and now even into our modern era and the ways that it kind of manifests itself within the church today. Now what I want to talk about is how is it that this brings brokenness to us as believers? Now, for me personally, I was a lordship guy for a long time. Hmm. Um, I And like you, like I had John Piper books. I, I looked at passages like the passage we talked about on our last episode together. I looked at that passage in the way that we were speaking against, where, mm-hmm. man, you know, few are going to find Christ. Few are going to actually be saved. I, I have to walk the straight and narrow. I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I have to prove myself. And I lived that way for a long time. And I, I will tell you, it is bondage. It is bondage Amen. to live that way because you're constantly living in fear. You're constantly living in a place of wondering, am I really saved? Do I really know Christ? Am I truly regenerated? I mean, I believe in who Christ is for me. I believe in what he did for me, but I just Mm -hmm. don't see enough in my life. I must not be a Christian. And then, of course, when you hear these doctrines preached in this way through Lordship Salvation, Final Justification, Federal Vision, New Perspectives on Paul, there's such a focus on being justified by works. And we can take this and circle back all the way back to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Could you read that quote again? Yeah, so Martin Lloyd-Jones says, main heresy is always justification by works. Yeah, and that is what eventually these aberrant teachings cause you to do. It causes you to be like the foolish Galatians Mm -hmm. and to want to continue the gospel in your life through works. And that ain't it. (laughs) That is not it. It is not it. Brother, uh, share with the listeners maybe your own experience or maybe things that you've seen where you feel like these teachings bring brokenness. Yeah, well, like you, I've lived in those places. I grew up in an Anabaptist church that completely confused law and gospel. And really, there was some heresy around justification that I grew up with because we had heresy of sinless perfectionism at work. That's another Galatian heresy issue. (laughs) There were so so many issues in just this way. Like Galatians was the key book that God used to help me understand what I was dealing with in that context. Yeah. 
and have the discernment and the the strength, so to speak, the confidence to take a stand and ultimately to leave. I needed Galatians because I was able to see from Paul's teaching that what I was dealing with was a different gospel that was no gospel at all, and that people were being drawn away from the gospel and not walking according to the gospel. And as Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Amen. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And I saw the yoke of slavery. And that's Paul's point, right? He says, neither we nor our fathers were able to bear this, right? And, and he told he told Peter, right, if you are a Jew and you live like a Gentile, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jew? We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified, so we, we see this clear emphasis that, man, as a Jew, you needed the gospel. Why would you now take Gentiles and try to bring them back under the law? That is so contrary. In Acts 13, Paul's preaching, and he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So, again, you see that clear demonstration of apostolic preaching that the law is a burden. The law is a pedagogue. The law is a schoolmaster. It enslaves. It brings bondage. It binds everything under sin. It does what it's supposed to do. Exactly. What it was meant to do. And it's not for the Christian in that first use sense. For the Christian, it is something that we follow or we adhere to, or that we strive for with, again, the guilt, grace, gratitude paradigm. So we see how it brings brokenness to people. We see how it can really get you off and it can really bring you into a lot of bondage and a lot of fear. Another way that it brought me into bondage and fear was that when I had that kind of dispositional, affective view of justification or, or that definition of faith, I would have confidence that I was justified and I would be living holy enough that I would think I'm producing the fruits of faith, therefore I have faith. But then when I would struggle with some besetting sin, I would just feel undone. And then instead of coming back to Christ, confessing my sins, resting in Christ, and continuing on in the fight of faith, I would think maybe I'm not a Christian. And so I wasn't, yeah. it was like I wasn't able to plug back into the gospel. Yeah, you just want to throw like, your oh, hands up. The and gospel give up. must not be for me because look at how bad I am. Yeah. It's like, no, I, that's why I need Christ. Yeah, that's that's why we need the gospel. What, what I think it was Martin Luther that said, I, I preach the gospel to myself every day because I need it every day. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that, yeah. that's, that's a paraphrase. Another, another way it brings brokenness that we talked about in our last episode as well is that when you're looking at yourself those dispositions those affections those works that obedience who are we not looking at jesus christ exactly one of the key insights of luther and one of my favorite quotes by him is he says when i look at myself i don't see how i could be saved but when i look at christ i don't see how i can be lost amen Amen. And that is a key insight yes. from Galatians that we need as Christians. And some of these deviations, whether they're heterodox or heretical, they mess that up for us. Yes. And they say, you have to look at yourself to have confidence. Yes. And Luther's like, no, that I will never have confidence from looking at myself. I look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. And that gives me all the confidence that I'll ever need or ever could have. Amen. Amen. Well, so we see how it brings brokenness. Now let's talk solutions. I'll Obviously, we know the only solution is 
the gospel. And I would encourage you, our listeners, read the book of Galatians and read it and read it and read it more. The more you read it, it, yeah, and read it again, (laughs) because the more you read it, man, the more it's going to help you to be able to really solidify what the law gospel distinction really is. And help you to understand that. That in the book of Romans. And, you know, we've pointed you to a lot of really good resources, and we'll put those in the show notes. But one thing I want to say is we can see how Paul dealt with this heresy in uh, Galatians chapter 1. He says, in beginning with verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. In the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, which I love that. He's like, you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, because there's not. (laughs) But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, that's what we've been talking about. Those who want to trouble you and distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen, here's how Paul deals with it. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Folks, if, if you're in a context where the Galatian heresy in all of its forms and facets is being preached, you need to steer clear of that because it is Amen. only going to bring brokenness and bondage to you in your life. Brad, do you have anything that you'd like to add to that? Yeah. I mean, when it comes to solutions you were talking about, I love what Paul says at the end of chapter two. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul gives us how to live by faith in Christ. And that is in contrast with living by self-reliance, works of the law, and obedience. And so the solution is what we'll be talking about in our next episode, which is monergistic sanctification, living by faith in the one who loves us and gave himself for us. It's personal faith in Christ for the whole Christian life. And, you know, the mystery of Christ is at the center Right, like I said earlier, justification by faith only seems impotent or inappropriate when you don't consider who Jesus is and what he's done. And so what Paul offers to us is not the law for sanctification, but Christ. And so the key to living a holy life is the gospel, the gospel that accords with godliness, the gospel of grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly righteous and holy in this present age. And it's the gospel, the power of God, the love of Christ that constrains and compels us. And so all the forms of the Galatian heresy do teach a form of godliness while denying its power. And Paul's solution to the problem of legalism is the gospel. Preaching Christ, giving us Christ, abiding in Christ, living in Christ, relying on Christ. That's why Paul says, him we proclaim in Colossians 1.28. So the Christian needs the proclamation of Christ for the whole Christian life from beginning to end. And that is really Paul's solution to teach us to live by faith in the one who loves us and gave himself for us and not rely on works of the law for our sanctification. Amen. That's some good words there, bro. 
thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome, brother. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, this has been fun. Uh, I just enjoy having these kind of conversations. And me and Brad, we just we love talking about Jesus. And I'm glad that you're able to be here and join us for that today. And just want you to know, uh, well, as Brad said, we're going to be talking about sanctification in our next Theology for the Broken Church, which will come out at the end of July. And we're going to be talking about the differences between monergistic sanctification and synergistic sanctification and where we kind of land on that. I think it's going to be a really helpful episode. And it can kind of see like the topics we're talking about. We're kind of building on mm-hmm. these topics. They, they kind of overlap and they build on each other. But I think it just, it's helpful. It, it's almost kind of helping you to have an understanding of like a systematic theology to a degree. And so that's really what we're trying to do. And again, we want to emphasize that overarching paradigm of the law gospel distinction. Man, that was a game changer for both Brad and I, that and understanding the active obedience of Christ. Man, when you understand those things and understanding the sovereignty of God, the whole world of scripture just opens up for you. And it brings so much hope and so much healing and so much just glory to God because it really Mm -hmm. makes God way bigger than contexts that I've seen God in as a child and as a young adult in the different church contexts I was in. Like where I'm at now, man, God is so much bigger than I ever could have imagined. And I'm just so thankful for that. Well, Brad, this has been fun, man. And uh, we are going to do this again next month. But thanks again for being here. And do you have anything you'd like to say as parting words? Yeah. So just listen to Paul in Galatians 5. I just think it's appropriate to end here. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We have an imperative to stand firm in our freedom. As Christians, we have been set free by Jesus and we can live in Jesus and we do not have to be pressured back under the law. Satan is the angel of light will want to come accusing our consciences of sin and use the guilt that we feel to drive us to perform to do works, to seek justification by the law, to turn away from Christ. And the reason why the Galatian heresy is so pernicious is that it severs people from Christ. It has people falling from grace. And we do not want that for you or for anyone. And so Paul's gospel, the only gospel, the gospel of Christ is where we stand. There is but one gospel and it is the power of God for salvation and it brings freedom. And that's what we are all about on Theology for the Broken Church is bringing people freedom that they might know their security and their place or hope that they have in Jesus and be encouraged and no longer live under the slavery of the law. Amen. We'd like to thank you today for joining us for Theology for the Broken Church with Josh and Brad. And we'll see you in a month to talk about sanctification.